Welcome to the Cookery by the Book podcast with Susie Chase. She's just a home cook in New York City, sitting at her dining room table, talking to cookbook authors. I'm Lauren McDuffie, and my latest cookbook is Smoke Roots Mountain Harvest. You believe in the power and magic of home cooking. So this cookbook is not a formal anthology to Appalachia. It's your very personal way to honor your home with stories and food. I didn't realize Appalachia was so vast, 25 million people and 13 states. Let's kick things off with you telling us exactly where it's located. Sure. Yeah, I think it actually does comprise a bigger portion of the United States than I think most people realize. Um, I think technically speaking, Appalachia stretches from New York all the way even down into Alabama, technically. So like you said, 13 states. Um, So it's a pretty big region. Um, But for my book, specifically speaking, the the region that I'm kind of honing in on and um, tapping into with my recipes and stories is central Appalachia. And I I refer to it as such in the book. Um, And I I think I call it the mountain South throughout as well, just to give people an idea of where specifically I'm talking about. So Wikipedia calls it a cultural region. I've never heard of that. And apparently it means an area inhabited by people who have one or more cultural traits in common, such as language, religion, or system of livelihood. Talk a bit about your family and Appalachian people. Yeah, I think when people see that I've done um, an Appalachian-inspired cookbook, they automatically expect to see some sort of Appalachian mama with like a thick country accent, which is not what you get with me. That's <laughs> I um, I grew up, you know, in eastern Kentucky and in southwestern Virginia, so right in the heart of central Appalachia. But in my house, that wasn't necessarily the lifestyle that you would have seen reflected. I mean, my mom was from Chicago and she married my dad. They met at the University of Kentucky. So from Kentucky, but I didn't have those kind of mountain, that mountainous upbringing. I didn't live in like the the back of a holler eating, you know, beans and cornbread every day. So I didn't have that kind of iconic Appalachian experience. Growing up, it was sort of more of just like a suburban, um, modern family with influences from from different places and we lived in multiple places growing up as well but I think um my grandmother on my mom's side however was from Kentucky um uh, it's like a rough creek Kentucky which is in southern Kentucky not far from Tennessee and I think the older that I the older I got the more interested I became in where she was from because she's the one who was my greatest cooking influence and um I think it took me growing up and away and from um Appalachia to become more interested in it. Um, because I think when you're a kid, it's just where you live is where you live. It's not particularly interesting to you. And you don't think of it with more, with, um, analytical eyes. And my husband would say the same thing. We moved away and then all of a sudden gained a greater appreciation for where we were from. And so while I didn't necessarily have that traditional Appalachian upbringing, I grew up in this part of the country that I realized was really interesting and very fascinating and has a lot to offer. And I wanted to learn more about it and kind of also rediscover some of my favorite things about it from when I was younger. So you just brought up Rough Creek, Kentucky. I love the name of that. I do too. And (laughs) it was your grandma, Nora. Yeah, was in Rough Creek. Tell Mm -hmm. me about her chicken stew with saffron scented dumplings. This is a true fusion 
recipe and I think kind of epitomizes what I was really trying to do with this book, capturing a little bit of the present and the past in a single recipe. Um, my grandma made really good chicken and dumplings and she made them the very classic traditional way, um, just simmering chicken um, for a long period of time with veggies and these thick, hearty um, dumplings. That's how she would make it. Um, but for my book, I wanted to kind of give it my own little spin and incorporate some flavors that I also love and that I um, cook with in my kitchen today pretty regularly. So I gave it a little bit of a North African twist by adding um, some warm spices like cinnamon sticks and cardamom and there's turmeric and infusing the buttermilk in the uh, the dumplings with some saffron um, just as like a little bit of an extra special twist, which you by no means have to do but it was just a really fun way to kind of bring new life into a really classic traditional recipe, which she had mastered. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I bet and she I, could do it with her eyes closed. Totally. <laughs> I wouldn't doubt it. <laughs> yeah. That's out of your winter chapter. Mm -hmm. And you organized all the chapters by seasons. Why did you do that? Well, that's, that's truthfully how I, how I cook. Um, I think I have, and especially the older that I get and the more cooking that I do, I've just gained a real appreciation for the benefits of seasonal cooking. Um, there's just a real logic to it. Honestly, it's, um, it's more affordable to purchase produce when it's in season and things taste better when they're grown in there or picked in their peak season. Um, and that's how my mom always cooked growing up. She's a real seasonal eater and cook. So I think I got a lot of influence from her. And I think, um, as far as my book goes, organizing it by season was really helpful, um, in the storytelling component of the book. It kind of helped me anchor the storytelling and the way that I kind of paced the menus, um, and the different spreads throughout the book too. So yeah, kind of twofold there. You dedicated this book to your mom by writing for you, mom, you were right all along. Talk a little bit about that. So my mom has always said since I was little that I would write a book someday. I mean, she's said it so many times. Um, and I used to just kind of bat, bat it away. Like, no, I don't know, mom, I don't think I can do that. I don't know. I don't know what I would write about, you know, and she's always said, no, I, I think you'll do it. I think you'll write a book someday. And so lo and behold, she was right and it happened. And so it only seemed right that I dedicate this first um, book to her because she had a lot of faith in me um, before I even did. So, yeah. I would venture to say that Appalachia is the most unique place in the United States. Why do you think it has had such a long struggle with poverty? I think, honestly, this is the kind of question we could dedicate like an entire episode to. You know, it's it's, we could deep dive for sure. And I'm not, I don't know that I'm so much an authority on this, but when it comes to the poverty in Appalachia, my understanding is that it goes back uh, quite a ways and can maybe be pinpointed to the, the industries that, um, that grew in the region in the 1800s, early 1900s, specifically coal mining, a big business coming in that wants to capitalize on a region they're going to do what they can to um, to better their position. And my understanding is that these manufacturers 
um, controlled the the populations of these uh, of Appalachia to the best of their ability by limiting access to information and limiting education and limiting wages um, to keep people dependent on them. So intentionally creating this dependency from my reading and from what I understand. And, and I think that's true for other rural parts of the country too, not just Appalachia, but, but specifically Appalachia really suffered from that practice. And when something goes on for generations, it's really difficult to pull out of it. And it's got really wide and far reaching Im- implications and impacts besides just poverty as well. But I know that's one that's still very much um, the case. I mean, it's recovered for sure, but it's still an issue. So you've seen the struggle affect the cuisine in the region? Yes, but I think it's an example of something beautiful coming from struggle because I love I love the notion of just kind of making the best of what you have, making the best of what's around. Um, the subsistence cooking, which still you see very much today, that's something that that has has definitely not gone away. The waste not want not mentality, which if I had a dime for every time my mom and grandma used those words, <laughs> um, that's an aspect of Appalachian cooking that I just appreciate so much. You know, just um, being really resourceful and efficient and effective in both your growing of food and then utilizing of the items once you've got them. And things like canning and preserving and pickling and just not wasting anything, using all of the plant from root to tip or an animal, um, not letting anything go wasted. That's something that I think anyone could appreciate that, whether they actually need to do it to survive or, or not. Describe the three sisters and how it came about from the Cherokee people. I love this story. I do too. I, you know, and I'm not a very green thumbed person. So maybe that makes me appreciate things like this even more. And I want, yeah, I wanted to include this in the book because I think it so beautifully epitomizes just what I was referring to. Um, just the smart approach to, um, to food and, and growing of food and cooking of food. So the three sisters, um, are refers to corn, um, beans and squash which are three crops that are traditionally grown together. Um, It's called companion planting, I believe. Um, And when you plant them together, they have a really beautifully symbiotic relationship. And this is something I believe the Cherokees, um, Indians introduced to the region. Um, And essentially how it works in a nutshell is the corn stalks provide a trellis for the beans to grow up so you don't need a pole. And... um, the squash, the leaves of the squash um, kind of provide shade and prevent sunlight from damaging the plants. And um, they also help prevent weeds from growing as well. And um, they also, I think they, they provide almost like a living mulch and even create a little like a, like a microclimate <laughs> for the beans to grow. And it's, it's amazing how beautifully the three crops work together. And I think when eaten together as well, they provide a very complete diet. Like you get your essential fatty acids, amino acids, and complex carbs. So it's just kind of a brilliant little system there. And they're called the three sisters. The first of your kitchen essentials is something you don't see that often mentioned in cookbooks. It's an apron. Talk a little bit about that. So I... I have an apron. Actually, I have a few, few of them, but I, I've worn the same apron now for years. And it's from uh, my friend Ashley, who runs a wonderful comp- company out of Georgia called Heirloomed. Um, and I've, I've worn it in a lot of photos that I've published on my blog or on social media over the years. So it's something that people do, that people do ask me about. 
a lot because I'm not sure, you know, everybody's rocking aprons in their modern kitchens now. I don't know. But for me personally, I enjoy just the function of the apron. I, I mean, it's, it serves a good practical purpose and not getting your, I, I think I'm a messy cook, honestly. So it's just nice to be able to <laughs> just save my clothing and I cook all the time. So for me, it's, there's a, just a nice practical function there. But honestly, I think I just like the, um, I just kind of like the act of doing it. It's similar to why I listen to the same types of music when I cook or just music in general. It's a, there's a ritualistic element to it. I, I just like the process of going in my kitchen. I throw my hair up, I tie my apron on, I turn music on and I just kind of, it's like my me time. You're a big advocate of making things from scratch. In the fall chapter, you have a recipe for s'mores from scratch. Yeah. That's crazy in my mind. Walk (laughs) us through this. (laughs) So, so I hear you. I, um, I made sure in the head note for that recipe to stress that if you want to streamline it or kind of do a semi homemade version, you can easily just do one component homemade in the other store bought, like just make homemade graham crackers and then go buy your marshmallows or vice versa. But if you want to do the full blown homemade s'mores, I have to tell you it, they're, they're great. They're delicious because I think each component, both the graham cracker and the marshmallow is so much better when you make it yourself. And not everything is, I mean, I don't make absolutely everything from scratch. I mean, you got to keep it real, but once you've had a homemade graham cracker, I swear you won't want to go back. I mean, there's something to be said for just that home-baked kind of cookie as opposed to a store-bought kind of dried out, who knows how long it's been sitting on the shelf kind of thing. So, And plus you can control the spices. I like to make a really spicy um, graham cracker and it's just, it's really delicious when you make it home, um, when you roll it out and make it yourself. And, and homemade marshmallows are the same. They're just much more flavorful than the ones you buy in the store. So I'm actually going to make them this Friday. I'm going to take them to a friend's house and we're going to do the whole deal out in the backyard with the the fire. So they're really fun. (laughs) I love how you said they're crazy. I get that though. You can streamline it if you want. (laughs) I was like, this girl's crazy. No, (laughs) I get that for sure. (laughs) No, but it sounds amazing and I'm definitely going to try it. Highly recommend it. What are some other recipes out of the cookbook you think are better made from scratch. So biscuits, I got to go, you know, I get that the pop, popping the can of biscuits, which has always kind of terrified me. That's the popping of the can. I know. It's like a fear of mine, but um, yeah, that's, I mean, of course that's a quick way to get biscuits on the table, but biscuits, a homemade biscuit takes like two minutes to whip up. They're so quick and they're so inexpensive and they're such an unbelievably delicious thing that I've always just thought, you know, that's a no brainer. Like that's a good one to just kind of always do from scratch because they're so easy to accomplish. Um, you know, if you want to talk like puff pastries or like croissants, then I would say, you don't know, no, that's, that's not easy and simple. So I would understand never wanting to do that, but biscuits are just so simple that I always advocate for making those from scratch. Um, and the graham crackers and the marshmallows, like I said before, those are really delicious when you make them. Um, yourself. <clears throat> and another thing that I always advocate for not buying and always making are salad dressings. I've got three or four salad dressings in the book. And I just think that com- when you compare a, a bottled store-bought dressing to a homemade one, there's just no, there's just no comparison. Homemade's so, so much better. So, oh, and hot sauce. There's a hot sauce recipe in my book too, which is not something I think many people would think to make maybe themselves because you can certainly buy 
hot sauce, um, a lot of different hot sauces now, but you can control the heat level and the flavors so easily. And it's kind of the sky's the limit when it comes to that. So that's a really fun one to make yourself. On page 83, you have a recipe for blackberry cobbler, crisp, (laughs) buckle, and Betty. What's the difference between all those? (laughs) Well, on a high level, those are all basically baked fruit desserts, which is one of my favorite genres of eating. I love a baked fruit dessert. Um, But to separate them out from one another, a cobbler is essentially, it's like a pie kind of, but you've got fruit on the bottom and you make a batter and you dollop and drop the batter on top in kind of a haphazard way, essentially cobbling the surface, hence the name. Uh, The crisp is similar to the cobbler. However, instead of the, the batter, you make a streusel, which I could eat by the bucketful. I love streusel. <laughs> I, I could make an entire chapter on just streusel things. I think I, I love me a crisp. That's probably my favorite in the whole section. Um, and then a buckle is, it's, it's a lot like a coffee cake, honestly. Um, you put the batter on the bottom and you sprinkle the fruit typically on the top. So it's kind of a reverse of a cobbler. And by doing so you get a, a buckled appearance. Um, and a little bit of a different uh, texture in the end as well from doing it that way. And then the Betty is probably the one with which people are least uh, familiar. And I love this one. It's yet another example of waste not, want not, using food, <clears throat> using scraps. Um, it's a lot like a crisp, but instead of making a streusel topping, you take bread. It could be staled bread or day-old bread. And you tear it up into pieces and you cook it on the stovetop. Um, and this is at least in the most traditional kind of classic sense, which is how I have it in my book. You just, um, toast the bread up and make essentially sweet breadcrumbs. So you use cinnamon and butter and some sugar, and it's really delicious sprinkled over some, um, cooked fruit and served with ice cream. So that's your Betty. I didn't realize cobbler was named because it looks like it's cobbled and buckle (laughs) looks like it's been, oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, now we know. named. Yes. (laughs) No. Yeah. Yeah. One of the photos I particularly love out of the cookbook was the one with your hand and a big cocktail ring pulling out Mm. an old recipe card out of an old recipe box. To me, it just evokes home and the old days. Is there a story behind that beautiful cocktail ring? There is. And I'm so glad that you asked and that you appreciated that photo. That's great. Um, So essentially, that's a mood ring. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So the story that anchors that chapter uh, or that section of the book, it's the apothecary chapter. Um, I write about my time in this really kind of eccentric little um, shop in Kentucky where I was looking for a present, a birthday present for a friend. And the woman who was um, working in the shop was just this really interesting kind of spirit who I had just a nice time talking to that day. And she's the one who introduced me to, um, folk medicine that I go into in that chapter a little bit, but she was wearing a mood ring and I noticed it and it was blue. (laughs) And when I was leaving her store, I think she could tell I'd been staring at the ring. And she explained to me that the blue, she explained to me what it meant and that she was at peace and happy and it's a positive, the blue meant something positive. And so, yeah, so I kind of wanted to play on that in that image. So yeah, the blue mood ring. Man, I haven't thought about mood rings in years. I I had one in the 80s. (laughs) Right? And it's kind of like a turquoisey green in the photo, Mm -hmm. isn't it? Yes, it is. I think that also means you might be cold. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, my daughter now is the happy owner of that mood ring. She loves it. So, <laughs> Did you take the photos in this cookbook? I did. Yes, I shot the whole book. I was just literally telling my husband this last night. Um, I think when you're, when you're working on a project that is just for you and it is all of your ideas and nobody's telling you what to do. I mean, my publisher Chronicle gave me complete control over this book. They literally were like, great, go, we'll see you in a year. (laughs) And that's an amazing opportunity. And it's almost a privilege to be able to go out and capture, um, well, my own stories, but also this place that I love. Um, and I, I was happy to be able to shoot it myself so that I could kind of portray it exactly how I wanted to. It didn't feel like work, I guess. Um, it felt like more of a great opportunity and kind of a privilege to be able to do it. Sometimes I find with cookbooks, and I read a lot of them, um, yeah. <laughs> that if someone, you can tell when someone else has shot the photos. So it seems almost mm-hmm. like the recipes and the photos are kind of two separate things. But here, everything yeah. kind of like flows together. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That's really nice. I'm glad to hear that. So on Sunday, I made the only pimento cheese recipe you'll ever need. <laughs> bold. I love it's a that. Bold thing. <laughs> on page 192. I think what makes this pimento cheese stand out is how simple it is, um, which probably is the case for all pimento cheese recipes. And um, this is, it's just one of my favorite things ever. I just love this stuff. Um, but I always say what makes this so good is um, using extra sharp cheddar cheese. Like that's really important. (laughs) It's just so much better using the extra sharp. Something about that little extra burst of sharpness is really nice. And also, um, I cannot stress the importance enough of grating your own cheese fresh from the block as opposed to just buying pre-grated. The difference there is kind of astronomical. So that's, that's a really big component of this recipe. I mean, it's a really simple recipe in terms of you know, the ingredient list is small, but you got to make sure you get that extra sharp cheese and that you grate it yourself. And I think a lot of pimento cheese recipes, you'll see that you blend everything up in a blender, which is also really nice. I've done that sometimes too. And it creates more of a, like a pinky red, creamy, totally homogenous, um, product in the end. But I kind of like having the pimentos flecked throughout. I enjoyed that about it. So, and I put a ton of black pepper in mine just for that little bit of bite. So Yeah, that's how I like it, though. I guess it's a really particular thing, (laughs) like cornbread and biscuits. Everybody's got the way they like it the best, but this has always been my favorite. Well, I've only had pimento cheese out of the glass thing, Mm -hmm. and my mom would put it on celery. Yeah. Back in the day. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) And I I know you saw this on my Instagram. I put it on a hamburger to make cheeseburgers. That's so brilliant. It was amazing. Was it good? Yes. <laughs> that sounded good. I saw that and I was like, well, got to put this on the to-do list. <laughs> yeah, it looked really good. Talk a bit about the whiskey spiked cream corn in the summer chapter. So that's another really simple recipe that is made better by just the few things that are in it and being thoughtful about them. So whiskey comes from corn. Corn is an ingredient in whiskey. So to me, it seems like a natural thing to at least try, um, in some corn recipes. And so, um, this, yeah, the cream corn gets a little extra boost of flavor from the whiskey, which cooks out. I mean, it's not like you're taking a shot of whiskey, you know, with each spoonful of, of this creamed corn, but it adds a nice, like faint sort of subtle backbone of flavor, 
uh, to that recipe, which I thought was really nice. Now to my segment called My Last Meal. What (laughs) would you have for your last supper? Oh, so I love this question. I wrote a whole blog post about this once um, because not to take things to like a totally different place, but I actually know someone who was on death row and he this is a person that I knew growing up. He wasn't a close friend of mine, but he was executed last summer in Virginia. And, and I, I remember being completely stunned by it. Our whole community was, it kind of rocked our world. And I thought about this a lot, like in a really literal sense, thinking this is a question he was truly asked and something that he was really faced with. And I just was like, what the heck, what do you do with that question? Like, what would mine be? And, um, I think if you want to have the best food experience that you, you know, could possibly think of, it'd be the things you love the most. And as, as maybe uninteresting as it might be, honestly, just a really good cheeseburger and some crispy, salty French fries is probably what I would choose as my last meal. With some pimento cheese on it? Totally. A pimento <laughs> cheeseburger. A pimento cheeseburger. Well, <laughs> see, full circle. This is full circle. This is... <laughs> Yes. I mean, that's honestly, that's, um, I don't let myself eat a whole lot of cheeseburgers and fries, I guess. So, but if it were my last meal, you better believe I'd be, (laughs) I would be doing it. Well, the reason I got the idea to ask this question, uh, this season from all of my cookbook authors was I was reading a book about last meals. And so I had the guy on to talk to him about it. And I think Virginia is one of the States with the highest execution rates. Yeah. I, yeah, that's true. It's crazy what these guys order. Oh, yeah. Well, I would love to hear what kinds of things was he saying? That's so interesting. Like one guy ordered before they changed the rules because he really made them mad. And I think this was in Virginia, actually. He ordered like 25 McDonald's hamburgers and then he wanted um, like 30 Taco Bell tacos and a Pizza Hut pizza. And they brought it all. They went around town, got it all. They brought it all in. And he was like, "Mm, I'm not hungry. So he's just messing with them. And he huh? made them so mad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So they had to put some restrictions, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> live and learn. They were like, that's enough. Oh, yeah, that's, that's enough. And it was wow. interesting. The, the women wanted things like fruit. Oh, and, wow. Um, huh. like healthy things. And the men yeah. just wanted like the big steak dinner. Okay. That's really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So where can we find you on the web, social media, and on Spotify? So on the web, I have a food blog called Harvest and Honey, um, and you can find me at harvestandhoney.com. And on social media, I would say I'm most active on Instagram, um, and I'm just on Instagram as underscore Lauren McDuffie underscore, (laughs) because Lauren McDuffie itself was taken. (laughs) So, So yeah, and I'm on Twitter as Harvest and Honey, I believe, and Facebook as well. There's really no place like home. Thanks, Lauren, for writing this super personal and informative cookbook. And thanks for coming on Cookery by the Book podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Follow Susie Chase on Instagram at Cookery by the Book and subscribe at cookerybythebook.com or in Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening to Cookery by the Book podcast, the only podcast devoted to cookbooks since 2015.